modern software is built with cloud services, APIs, and other high-level tools. Technical software development is moving beyond the realm of writing code. Individuals who do not have a background in computer science or programming can create increasingly complex tools. Higher-level APIs include Twilio for managing phone communications and Stripe for managing financial workflows. Platforms such as Shopify can be used as the core system for building an e-commerce business. Low-code tools such as Wix can be used for building websites. Monday.com was started in 2012 with the goal of making software for managing business workflows. Business workflows link together different teams and processes within a company. Monday allows non-engineers to automate workflows that are traditionally automated by engineers. For example, Monday can be used to build workflows that link together Salesforce and Twilio, or to trigger actions in MailChimp based on how a user interacted with a Shopify website. One of the biggest developing trends in technology is how non-engineers are becoming empowered to have more impact within an organization. The advances in these kinds of tools present us with an opportunity to rethink team structures and invent entirely new roles for a software company. Eran Zinman is the CTO and co-founder of Monday.com, and he joins the show to describe the vision for Monday and how the product fits into the changing enterprise software trends around APIs and low-code tools. Monday has grown exponentially over the last seven years, with the most recent growth curve looking almost vertical. Iran's experience scaling the product and improving performance makes for some excellent storytelling. Full disclosure, Monday is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Aaron Zinman, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. You co-founded Monday in 2012. Was the initial vision for what the product would be the same as what it is today? I think it's the same problem that we try to solve since the beginning. Both Rui and I, Rui, my partner, we always wanted to solve core management issues for companies. We always wanted to be at the core of what businesses do. And we always wanted to be the tool that connects everything within the company. And when we started, the product was more focused around communication between people. But pretty early on in, in the life of the company, we realized that it needs more structure. And we launched our boards, which is the core element of our product today. And ever since then, you know, this has been our focus as a company. When you say core business management, what does that mean relative to project management? Because this is like a different category. Yeah, I think, you know, when you think about workplace collaboration and everything around that, the several solutions to different people. So obviously, you got tools that deal with communication, uh, tools like Slack and, and Microsoft Teams. And you have a different aspect of the business, which is managing projects and managing tasks. But businesses are much more than that. Every business has a, a core cadence, a core process that happens every X amount of time. And it's not projects exactly. I mean, every, everything you do is not a project. 
project can be a one-time thing, but what about everything that happens within projects? And even projects themselves are very, very different from one company to another. So at the end of the day, where we want it to be is to be the core tool that manages your day-to-day work, I guess. One trend I have noticed in some newer software products, very few products have, have gone this way so far, but another one that comes to mind is GitLab. So GitLab is the kind of the idea is we're going to give you a big bundle of tools and you can use whichever ones you want and you're free to mix and match them with other external tools. We're not going to prevent you from using any external tools. In fact, we're going to encourage you to use external tools. We're going to encourage you to use external APIs. But we are going to give you defaults that you're free to use if you want to. Does this seem like a, a newer software pattern to you? Yeah, I think that one thing that was very important for us as a company is to build a product that doesn't lock you in within Monday, for example. So like our philosophy has always been that we want to play nice with everybody. We want to have the best import to Monday and we want to have the best export to Monday. And the way I look at it is that, you know, a tool as horizontal as Monday. So Basically, you can do anything on top of Monday. People can manage project and tests, but they can also manage HR processes, they can manage sales pipeline, and they can manage almost any aspect of their business. But for some companies, it might make sense that they want to use different tools to do some, some of that. And, and it's fine. We don't want to be the one tool that does everything. We realize that bigger companies might have tools that specialize in a very specific part of the business. So in, in that respect, we build our integrations platform, which basically allow you to share information from different tools into Monday. And stuff that happens within Monday can be synced to different tools outside of Monday. So it might be that you'll use Monday to manage every aspect of your business, but it might be that you'll sync some of the data into Monday and Monday will be more of a place where you can visualize some of the data or collaborate on some of the data and both use cases are fine with us. I want to make this more tangible for listeners by giving some examples. So let's say I run some kind of e-commerce business. Let's say I sell t-shirts and I want to use Monday to integrate with my e-commerce front end or maybe to build an e-commerce front end or you know, you want to do triggering on orders to send emails. You want to send text messages. You want to do these kinds of integrations. Can you describe to me some of the ways that Monday would facilitate those kinds of, like, back-end processes? Yeah, this is a very interesting example. So you mentioned you have a e-commerce website, and we have a lot of customers that do that. So you might use a platform So this like, is like they already have Shopify set up or something. Yeah. So you might have a Shopify store already using that. And it's great to manage your, uh, your inventory and to have people buying your stuff online. But then people will have a complete process after somebody buys something from the store. So one of the integrations that we launched is a Shopify integration where whenever somebody buys anything from your online website, it will sync directly into Monday. So you'll see the new order on Monday. And then you might have a whole process that you do. Anything from uh, manufacturing or packaging, anything you know, in, that, in that respect, uh, which you'll manage on Monday. 
But tr the interesting thing is that it doesn't stop there because let's say that you've done all of that and then you want to send an email to the customer saying package is on its way. So you're going to add another integration inside Monday with Gmail or Mail MailChimp, for example, where whenever you set a status to be done, the customer will get an email notifying them that the package is on its way or they'll send an SMS. So basically what happens is that you manage a whole workflow within Monday, but you basically facilitate a bunch of different APIs and a bunch of different software in order to do that. And it's mind-blowing to see what our customers are building. So they're building entire operations and workflows within Monday that leverage many different APIs in one process. So if, if I've got Shopify, Shopify already has places where I can slot in those integrations. I don't know exactly how that works typically, but like how does that... It's just interesting because you have, you know, these kind of thick platforms like Shopify, I think of as kind of a thick platform. Monday, I think of as kind of a thick platform. There's a lot you can do with each of them. And then you have things that are a little more narrow, like Twilio or SendGrid. And it seems like you could put that integration on either of those thick platforms. Again, I don't know exactly where the integrations can slot in, but can you tell me more about like how the business user who's architecting this like integration point, like where should they put in the Twilio insertion point? Yeah, it's it's a great question because I agree. You know, Shopify it makes a lot of sense for them to develop this kind of feature where you can notify the customer about a, a package being delivered. I'm not sure about the process because each business of uh, their own process once the order has been uh, made. So I think this touches to a more basic kind of concept of what is Monday. So basically what we do is we give people, the way we look at it is, is that we give them uh, Lego bricks and we give them the ability to uh, customize the software for their needs. And I think this is super powerful in, in that respect. So it might be that Shopify or any other platform which you define as thick might have those features, but at the end of the day, it might be a very specific, rigid feature that they have that doesn't suit all businesses. And they want to have this flexibility, which they, they have in Monday. So in that uh, scenario, it makes a lot of sense for them not to use uh, that specific feature in Shopify, but to sync the data from Shopify to Monday, have a very customized process within Monday, which they built, and then kind of have the the other side of the process, you know, with sending an SMS using Twilio or sending an email using SendGrid. So the fact that we allow them to customize anything that they want and connect whatever they want at any part of the process is very empowering. Can you give me another example of a business workflow that somebody has implemented or architected that has surprised you? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty because... You know, one of the things that I love most about our platform is that I could never imagine what our customers are building on top of us. Uh, and we could never kind of come up with all the use cases that our customers are coming up with. Another great ones that I saw uh, are uh, an integration. We have an integration with a tool called uh, Zendesk, which you probably know. And, you know, one of the things that we found in general is that there's so much information hidden in, in different SaaS tools in each, each organization. You get so much feedback from our customers, but at the end of the day, most of that feedback 
is not available to other people in the company. You know, people uh, managing products, people doing development work. And one of the most uh, beautiful integrations that I saw is when people connect Zendesk to Monday. So whenever a customer submits a ticket about a specific feature, so let's say that you launch a new feature and a customer mentioned that as part of their ticket, and you can have a rule within Monday. So whenever a ticket is submitted with a specific keyword, it will be added to one of our boards. And then basically we can add additional columns in that board where we can uh, measure the data and we can get like specific feedback on that feature. And this creates so much visibility into the feedback that uh, companies get from customers. So we might have one of the use cases that I saw is one of our customers connected Zendesk, got a ticket about a specific topic into Monday. In that case, it was bugs and issues that uh, customers reported on. And then uh, the whole process of fixing the bug was on Monday. And then once the bug was resolved, they sent an email directly to the customer saying that the, email was, the bug was resolved and they're happy to get their feedback. So this whole process was baked in, uh, into our platform. Tell me about the initial architecture of Monday and, and the initial product surface area that you built in back in 2012? Yeah, so one of the main components in Monday is the board itself, which looks a little bit like a, a grid or a spreadsheet. It contains many cells, columns, and rows. One of the challenges that we had uh, was around how can you fit a grid that large into the browser? It was really heavy on the DOM. And one of the techniques that we used was to use a virtualized DOM in order to display all the content. So you might have a board with hundreds of thousands of, of lines, and it we were unable to load everything you know, in one shot. So we basically loaded it into the client, didn't render all of it. And every time you scroll, you basically see only a, a portion of the board. So it's, it's basically all virtualized, but it feels like you have access to the entire board. It's kind of of a way to trick the browser in a sense, but if you want to support such a massive uh, record base, uh, you have to use these type of techniques in order to do that. That's like what people do when they're building MMOs. Like you feel like you're walking around in this big virtual world, but actually only part of it is rendered on your screen. And like as soon as you walk slightly beyond the perimeter, it kind of expands the world in that way beyond your horizon of view. It's kind of the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, because I, I think we were really inspired by what happens on mobile phones. Uh, mobile phones, iOS and Android have a, a they call it recycle, uh, recycle uh, view. So basically recycle the same elements, just render different content inside those elements. So we had to do the same thing for, for our web display just to support so, ma- so much content and so many rows inside our board. One of the things that we care most about is the performance over our uh, clients. So we did above and beyond to for it to be the fastest as we can. And what were you doing on the back end? What kind of cloud services were you using? Tell me more about that. Yeah, so, so we're using a bunch of databases for our platform. We're using uh, MySQL. We're using a, a really cool database called uh, MemSQL, if you heard of it. Sure, uh, MemSQL. Yeah, it's, it's super fast. It works for us in production. Super happy with it. We use a lot of Redis databases because it's super fast. And, and basically, one of the other databases that we use is uh, Elasticsearch, where we indexed all of our content and allows our users to search 
anything on the platform. So we're using a bunch of different databases for different use cases. And every time we kind of stumble into another bottleneck, we try to think what's the best way to optimize that. Should we switch that content into another DB, if it makes sense? MemSQL. So that's kind of, I would c- categorize MemSQL into the very, very broad category of new SQL, you know, the the broadly speaking SQL databases that can do kind of OLAP stuff, and they can also do transactional stuff, and they've got a lot of engineering going on below the surface. And there's a ton of these things. I think MemSQL is pretty early to this game, so maybe you started using it early on, but have you evaluated many more of these new SQL databases? Yeah, I mean, using MemSQL was after a long process of of looking into a few databases. And I agree there's might be, whenever there's a new database coming up, there's some degree of uh, hype around it. And it always kind of, you want to make sure that you're making the right decisions because it's so hard to switch afterwards. But we were pretty much an early adopter with MemSQL. And we knew we took in some risk with it, but we were in constant communication with them. And it was really, you know, a process where we were partnering and helping one another. We kind of submitted a few bucks for them and they released a few features that we requested and we're super happy with it. I think from our perspective, as long as you have like a very good communication uh, with the database software, I think it kind of makes sense to try new types of databases. So I want to give people even more of a mental picture for what this software looks like on the front end and how it's kind of modeled on the back end. We've done a few shows with people who are developing spreadsheet-like products, especially, you know, highly dynamic spreadsheet-like products where the UI layer is really important. You really need it to be performant and... I think building these things has gotten a lot easier as uh, kind of React has become more prominent and, you know, the browser has just gotten a lot better. Back in 2012, it, things were harder. Like, you, you had to do these these things like what you said with the, the virtual DOM and the, you know, all these performance constraints and whatnot. And in order to understand, like, why you had to do all that that work to in, improve the performance, can you just describe like what is a like if there's a let's say there's a very complex business who has who has been a power user of monday maybe they've got like four thousand people on their team and you've got to do all this data syncing across a big team and across a really big board and maybe they're using this board for something really complicated can you just paint me a picture of a very complicated business case and how their team is interacting and what that what ramifications that has on the front end yeah, so basically some teams might have hundreds of boards in one account and using them for different use cases. Some boards might have hundreds of thousands of rows. Uh, some boards might be just a few rows. And you know, just to add on top of that, everything is being updated in real time. So if two people working on the same board, everything will be updated in real time. We're using sockets for it to be like instant updates. So you want to support, on one hand, huge boards with a lot of data, a lot of complexity, but you want them to be lightning fast and you want everything to be updated in real time. And, and this presented a lot of challenges because one thing for sure, you can send huge amounts of data every time you make a change. So 
we design the platform so any change that you do is, is atomic to that specific cell, send the minimal amount of data between different clients. And every time you make an update, we send minimal amount of data back to the server. And thing that we do, we do on the client side. So we have very complex columns within Monday, anything from uh, a formula column, which is a kind of a formula that you can see in Excel, which takes data from multiple columns and, and generates new value into the columns. So we have you know dependency between columns and a lot of other stuff uh, going on. One of the f- key things that we changed along the years was we started with the backbone, JS, as our core kind of library for our client side. And we were pretty much an early adopter for React. And this has been a game changer for us. Uh, ever since we moved to React, it was much easier for us to kind of separate each one of our components on the client side and reuse each one of the components that we created because we want to display different columns in different locations uh, inside the platform. So moving to React, I think, really supports uh, this kind of grid application, which you mentioned, because of the nature of the components inside of it. I remember actually some early React demos where the way that they would display just how performant it was relative to other JavaScript frameworks was literally rendering cells in kind of like a spreadsheet-like table view, and they would just like see like how many of these can we render and how performant is it, and React was pretty good at outstripping those other ones. Yeah, I think it's designed for that. The fact that it renders only what changes in the user interface is a big part of enabling application like ours to support huge amounts of data on the client side. So I was looking at your growth. You've been around for almost seven years, but the growth really started to get insane around 2016. Was there something that accounted for that inflection point in the business? So we we launched our product in early 2014. So it's been five years. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So you started in 2012 and you didn't launch till 2014. Yeah, we, we started a company end of 2012. Uh, this is when we raised our uh, seed round. And we spent about a year in the product market, uh, uh, product market phase, kind of figuring out what's the best thing to build. We, we met with a lot of managers and, and kind of trying to figure out what's the best solution that they'd be looking for. And we launched the first version of the product beginning of 2014. And we had... Uh, amazing growth since then. We kind of tripled almost every year since then. And this year, we're going to cross the 100 million in in ARR. Uh, So it's super exciting. So when you were talking to those managers and you were interviewing and just kind of figuring out the what this product should look like, what did you here i mean this is this is kind of a i mean i think that's that's a great approach i I don't think that's a necessarily a super common approach i mean it's to some extent common but i think more often these days you kind of see the simultaneous building of a product while talking to people it sounds like you spent more time talking to people up front before starting to build the product yeah i've been developing all my life and i was also managing developers prior to starting monday and I've used almost any tool that I could find, all the usual suspects. And I found myself always frustrated from using those tools, not because they, wasn't, they weren't good enough, because I found that whatever works for me right now, in a few weeks or in a few months, once the 
company changes or the team changes, so they just don't fit anymore. So there was, this was kind of the inspiration behind Starting Monday is to build something that allows people to build kind of their own tools. And we came with this approach to several managers that we met throughout our product market fit stage and asked them, what kind of software are you guys using? And everybody was using a different software. But when we asked them, so how do you communicate? How do you really communicate with your team and with your manager? Are you using that software? And it was funny, but like 99% of the cases, everybody had a secret spreadsheet file that they used. So, so I asked him, why are you using that spreadsheet? And they said, you know, I just build it. It makes sense for me. I change it all the time. And this is the best way to communicate. And we thought, you know, how about we use that as a base of, of our product, that spreadsheet way of thinking. And this was kind of the foundation of, of how we kind of first thought about our product. Hilarious. We have that spreadsheet. We have two of those <laughs> spreadsheets. <laughs> we have two of those. Yeah, it's just, it's like part social network, part spreadsheet. <laughs> That's what it's become. Yeah, so, so you should uh, use Monday.com then. Well, I mean, you know, I, I took a look at, I have tinkered with the product. I'm scared, you know, I'm scared of the migration path, right? You know, it, we're, we've been using the spreadsheet for like two years. It's got a bunch of tabs, got a bunch of comments with Google, you know, my Google identification and it's like i don't i'm kind of afraid to to move it like and change my my workflow uh, which, is, it, which is not to say i'm opposed to like using it for my next business like i'm certainly not I, like if we were talking about like starting this you know starting this thing today like if i was building a media planning system today there's no way i would use like google docs for like my media planning process but it's like i, I feel so locked in at this point <laughs> Yeah, I mean, spreadsheets are great. I have nothing against spreadsheets. But at the end of the day, you found out that it's not a tool that uh, multiple people can work together. And you lack a lot of layers of communication and history tracking. You lose messages. You lose messages. Uh, somebody make a change and nobody knows about it. Uh, you lose data for some reason. And one thing that we built into the platform, which I realized, you know, I sympathize uh, with how you feel is an ability to import data from different tools. And one thing that's very unique about how we built it, and this is pretty cool, is that it's not a one-time import. It's import and sync, which I've never seen anywhere. So just imagine that you import data from that spreadsheet, but it still connects to that spreadsheet. So if you add more data into it, it will be reflected into Monday. So it's not like a one-time import. So you can feel pretty safe trying it out and, and give it a go. And if it works for you, great. If not, next project is also fine for us. Well, now I'm scared of like eventual consistency, right? Because if I make a change, like now, what guarantees do I have on the latency for that change? Like, am I trusting, what kind of middleware am I trusting to enable that change? Yeah, you have to have some degree of trust into that. But I think... From what we saw when we launched this import feature, it reduced a lot of the friction that some of our customers had. Because changing, I mean, moving from one software to another is definitely not easy to do. It changes a lot of the behaviors that people have that get used to. So we try to make it as, as easy and as smooth as possible by doing that. Yeah, you'll get me eventually. <laughs> because, I mean, I've obviously done software migrations before. I've, I've definitely done tooling migrations. I mean, it always feels good 
on the other end of it. You know, it's just like beforehand, you're you're always scared, or maybe it gets easier over time. Maybe I just need to do more of them. And so in that the period of time from 2014, you know, you launch with this thesis that people are communicating around spreadsheets, and maybe we should expand on the abstraction of a spreadsheet, turn it into a board, make the board more dynamic, make it have API integration, flexibility, better UI, more social system. Sounds like it gained traction pretty quickly. And then in that period from 2014 to 2019, there's been a ton of change in the market for business software. And there's also been a ton of change in the, like, I think the roles are changing. I think the, like, the level of abstraction that like kind of a non-programmer can work at has has expanded you know like if i'm if i'm a fairly technical software user but i'm not a programmer i can do a lot these days so how has that market for business software changed in the last five years? I think it changed dramatically and I saw I experienced it from our perspective seeing how the market have changed you have to tools today like Airtable, for example, Notion, that my feeling is that we all have kind of the same mentality around giving people the freedom and the flexibility to build their own tools. Each one is taking a very different approach. So, you know, Notion is more around, from what I saw, documents and personal use. Airtable is more around uh, building a database and more for developers, where we, we want to give people a platform that they can have uh, their entire work processes on and basically manage every core aspect of the company on our product. But if you look at the kind of the core principles that I think guide all those products is giving people more freedom and giving people the ability to build their own tools in a sense, which didn't exist a few years ago. A few years ago, you would use a software that's very specific for a very specific use. You had almost no degree of flexibility using that tool. And if you had to change anything, you were stuck. And the way I look at the market and the way I see the software market evolve in the next few years is that it will gradually shift to tools that give you a, a higher level of freedom and more ability to customize your own processes because people realize that everything is so dynamic, everything changes so fast that it doesn't make sense to build a tool that does only one specific thing that it was designed for. So I've seen this changes dramatically over the past few years. When we started, people asked, oh, you're just another project management tool. And we said, no, we're much more than that. And people didn't get it. But I think they get it now. What's interesting about this 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 uh, trend, and some people call it low code or no code, and I almost think that's like doesn't fully grasp what's going on here. I mean, it, it's I think they're, those are fine, like stand-in terms for whatever the heck is going on. But something really important is happening with these these sets of tools that allow non-programmers to build very technical, very abstract, very high leverage workflows. It's something that's really important. And if you think about that Conway's law. You know, Conway's law is often is is this like idea that your communication structures within the company reflect the business software or the business systems that you have, and the business systems that you have will reflect the communication structures. Well, what happens when the business software becomes so modular 
and you know so high leverage that basically like a, you can hire a, a smart worker a smart like s- somewhat technically enabled worker and then they can basically do everything like they can i mean they can help build sales workflows they can help with the marketing automation they can like help build some back end twilio thing like what changes in roles should we be doing team structures entirely differently yeah it's a great question one thing i didn't mention about monday is the fact that uh, more than 70 percent of our customers are non-tech so the vast majority of our customers are non-technical people with no development background or even you know advanced technical background but like they have Excel background or Photoshop background, yeah, something they like might that. Yeah, have used you know uh, Microsoft Office or a bunch of other tools, but nothing that you would consider to be super techy. But then you see those people building unbelievable stuff on top of Monday, which back in the days it would be considered to you have to use a developer to do that. And I've been talking with customers all I'm talking with customers all the time. And, you know, some of the customers that I speak with are non-technical at all. And you see them building this very complex workflow with, uh, where they, you know, eventually send an SMS automatically using Twilio. And they have no idea what Twilio is. And they have no idea Twilio has an API. But for them, using Monday, it just, you know, I feel we're kind of setting all APIs free. <laughs> like we making APIs accessible by using a user interface that makes sense to them. And, you know, at the back end, connecting a lot of different APIs uh, for them. So it just excites me to see how people that haven't written one line of code in their lives create very complex workflow that they couldn't do before. But how is it changing? Do you think we need a formal change in team structure? Because, like, the way teams are organized today are so rigid. You know, we have, like, the sales team and the marketing team. And, you know, much like we had this disjunction between development and operations that got unified in the DevOps movement, that's not to say that we don't really have dedicated development and operations people, but by breaking down the explicit silos we had there were some advantages anyway what what do you i mean what do you think about team structure i think software like monday enable teams to be more independent so you mentioned the sales team i can tell you a little story about our sales team so our sales team and this is a real story from our company they wanted to have a form on our website that people can leave their details for them to contact so if somebody want to contact sales, they will have a form inside our website, and then they get back to that person and have a sales call. And the R&D came back and said, oh, we're pretty busy this week, and, and we'll probably do it kind of in the next uh, three or four weeks. So one of the guys in the sales team said, I'm not going to wait. It, we have a, a functionality within Monday called uh, Monday Forms, where you can build your own form, and whenever somebody submits the form, it will go to automatically into Monday. He built it in Monday, he put the link into our website, and he built a bunch of automation on that form where if a company is above a certain size, it, it will open a new uh, ticket in Salesforce. If it's below a certain threshold, open a, a ticket within Zendesk. And when I saw that, my mind was blown because what I saw is that you know somebody had a problem with, within the sales team. It didn't have a developer resource in order to fix it. 
and he found a way to fix it himself. And it was mind-blowing to see that because just a few years ago, it didn't have any opportunity to do it on, on their own. They had to use a developer to do it. But the fact that they did it uh, without any kind of technical background was amazing. So I, I definitely think that uh, software like ours uh, will enable teams to be more independent and rest reliance on, on tech developers. For sure. You know, another another uh, thing that comes to mind, you, you mentioned to me that you had heard the episode with uh, Tom from Redpoint, the episode about IPOs. That's actually the second episode I did with him. I also did an episode where we talked about a book he wrote, he co-wrote with the co-founder of Looker, which was called Winning with Data. And part of it was about Tom's experience at Google and like the early days of when a data analyst, you know, if they want to find out about like how did ads do yesterday, they have to literally go to the the data engineering team and say, hey, like, can can you please run a MapReduce for me? Like, can you please, can you just do that? Can you get it for me tomorrow, please? And, or, or you get like an, you know, more, an email every morning and then you, you need to say like, hey, can you actually add this extra like column to this report, please? And then you have this, this dynamic where you have the quote unquote data breadline where the data analysts have to wait for the data engineer to change the MapReduce query. And like now we don't really have that problem because we have self-serve data tools and you're talking about that trend kind of uh, kind of expanding, which is pretty promising. Yeah, I think tools like Looker really set the data free. This is how I look at it. Uh, like you said, I build my own reports. Uh, we also use in Looker in Monday. And it just feels like you're empowered. And I feel we're doing kind of the same thing around work processes and automations and connecting different tools, which I found to be super exciting. One of the things that, that we kind of, def- the way that we define ourself is uh, that we can become the work operating system for businesses and basically connect almost anything and being some sort of a hub around many different applications. I think like the average tech company uses, you know, a few hundreds of, of SaaS tools and just connecting all those tools and, and creating one place where you can experience all that data and all that information have one place where you have all your processes is so valuable and, and, and it's so required these, these days that I feel there's a huge gap to fill. So I think that work operating system is a, is a, fair, a fair vision to have, especially given the, the level of growth that you've had. Operating systems are not easy to architect. They're not easy to manage the source code for. So that vision for the operating system do, do you think of it like a um, like a monolithic big piece of code, a big binary thing that you're building occasionally and and like you know shipping out to people, or like how decomposed is it? Give me a give me a framing for how the software architecture looks today. Yeah, so so this is a this is really interesting because the way that we build Monday is thinking about how people will be able to extend it in the future. So if you just, the basic element is a board where it has a bunch of columns and we have a, what we call a column store where we have additional 30, 40 types of, of different columns. And then on top of that, we have views, which allow you to visualize data 
in different ways, either using a graph or a map or a form or anything like that. And then we have automations and integration, which is a different store. So the way that we build a platform is that each one of those stores can be easily extended. And our vision and, and something that uh, we're working on right now is to allow third-party developers to build their own extensions. So in the future, they'll be able to add different type of columns, different type of views, and different type of integrations to Monday. So it, it will be easily extensible for developers from outside. And how does your selection of software look today? And specifically, what cloud provider are you using, if any? Where are we hosted on? Yes. We're hosted on, on Amazon. Amazon. Okay. And how aggressively do you use Amazon, like Amazon services, or do you kind of you just use their like raw services and build your own things on top of it? Most of the cases, uh, we kind of build our own services on top of EC2 machines or other other options. Uh, but we use some of their services. But you know, one, one of the key things for us as a, as a company is super high availability, super high sensitivity around the data. So we use a lot of you know backup mechanism just to be almost 100% available at all times. So this is something that's really important for us. Have you done any containerization? Not enough. Having, for example, the new automations and integration platform that we launched is done inside a container. But apart from that, we're using uh, Ruby on Rails on the server side, which kind of led us to build some kind of a you know, monolith, if you want. So we, now we're kind of in a phase where we're decomposing it into smaller services. So now when you say not enough, and you say you want to decompose into small services, I've had some really interesting conversations recently with some, I would say, slightly more experienced engineers, not, not more experienced than you, just people who are more, who are more, people who have spent a lot of time at Facebook, for example. Facebook has a monolith. So they've made me kind of question how much, like, how much of this service breakdown, this breakdown of the monolith into services is it necessary? Is it is it a good expense of our time? I mean, we, we know because we if we spend this time, obviously we we know we've heard all the benefits of breaking up the monolith into microservices. But there's also benefits to keeping it monolithic, and also there's a, a huge opportunity cost when you spend time investing in breaking up your monolith into microservices. You seem like a pretty pragmatic engineer, so I don't think you're getting caught up in the hype cycle. Tell me about that assessment of of making the decision to, to break out some services. I definitely agree. You know, I've been enough time in the, in the industry. I've been writing code, I think now for over 30 years, I guess. I started like when I was seven. So this is what I do all my life, basically. And, and I've seen so much hype around so many things in my history writing code. So I'm not excited about every new thing. I've seen them come and go. A promise is being made, and, and then people kind of revert back to what it was. So I think, you know, when this trend of breaking down to services started, it was like all or nothing. Like you should break everything to pieces. And, exactly. and I, I don't think it makes sense. It just makes everything so much more complex. And, and obviously, it wasn't like bottle tested in production. And I think what people found out that, you know, at the end of the day, it makes things more complex if you break everything into pieces. So my kind of view on that is that it's okay to have you know a, a big code base 
But where it makes sense to break it into pieces is when you have different volumes or traffic or, or anything that's kind of, is it been affected by either amount of data or amount of usage within your platform. So for us, when we built the, the, the integrations and automations, it made a lot of sense to build it as a separate project because what we realized from the very beginning is that a lot of data is going to be synced to Monday and from Monday, which is you know, a different, a totally different number from the amount of actions that people do manually inside a platform. So we have to be prepared. We have to have different servers and different technology in order to support it. And then it, it makes more sense to do it from a business perspective, if it makes sense. So I got super caught up in, uh, well, I get caught up in these hype cycles. <laughs> You know, because I I'm I'm super subject. I'm just I'm I'm trying to get better about it. What are we getting overhyped about today? Is there anything in particular where you see it and you're just like meh, relative to uh, you know other other people's excitement? Yeah, I have one story that I always tell developers here that I had one person coming for an interview here on Monday for a developer position. It was a few years ago, and one of the things they asked me was I've mentioned that we're using Ruby on Rails. So they asked, so why aren't you guys using Node.js? Right. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a funny scenario where you're in an interview and you have to kind of defend your decision <laughs> to use Ruby on Rails. Well, it's so funny because I, I, I remember I did the same thing. In a couple of times I was interviewing people, how dare you use <laughs> Ruby on Rails? Yeah. You outdated. How do you have time for doing this podcast interview? Get back to work and fix your Ruby on Rails model. If you go to Node.js microservices right this instant. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of had to think for, for a few seconds and then, then I asked them back. So what do you think we should move to Node.js? And then there was like this little moment of silence where <laughs> <laughs> they have to kind of come up with reasons. But, you know, one thing that I found is that you mentioned Facebook is, is still using PHP or some version of it. We use Ruby on Rails. And what I found is that at the end of the day, you might have one programming language that's, you know, a little bit faster than the other, but that's not what slows applications down. It's usually the database, usually using something like inefficiently. So using one programming language over another, I don't think has a huge impact on performance. It's, it's more about human errors and not using technology in the right way that, that slows you down. Totally. The worst thing I did actually just comes to mind now is there was a I was interviewing like somebody who was who was running a coding boot camp one time. It was a Ruby on Rails coding boot camp and I was just like laying into him. I was like, How are you teaching these people this antiquated Ruby on Rails <laughs> technology? You need to be teaching them Node.js. And I just like think back on that, I'm like, Man, I was just really really caught up in the hype. It's easy to do. Yeah. So What's it like building a software company in Israel? Wow, I mean, it's, it's amazing because I think for a very long time, Israel was perceived as, you know, as a startup nation, but a place where you kind of aim for an exit or kind of build in a small company waiting to be acquired in a way. And what I feel now is that there's a new wave of companies that building something sustainable, huge businesses. I think Wix was kind of a, one of the things that made an impact on us, seeing them grow so much and, and go in public. And I remember Rory and I, even in the beginning of our journey, thinking to ourselves, we want to build a huge company. We want to build a multi-billion dollar company out of Israel 
and becoming one of the tech giants on, in the world. And I remember that, you know, back in the days, it seems like a very ambitious thing to do. It still is. Not anymore. <laughs> you, well, you're set, I mean, you and Wix, you and Wix, and I'm sure there's a few others at least, you know, setting the stage. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I have a few friends, uh, founders that also build amazing businesses out of Israel. We have an office in New York as well, where we have customer success and sales. And also, you know, a few years ago, when we met investors, they were like, are you guys planning to move to the US? <laughs> are you guys, you know, how do you think they can build a business out of Israel? And now the wind has shifted. Like, I think now it's very reasonable. And, and they see it even as an advantage because it's easier for us to recruit engineers here as opposed to Valley, I think, where there's so much more competition going on. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Ido Gino from Rat. He runs Rapid API, and I don't know if you've met him, but he's he's originally from Israel, and he has like distributed teams, and I think he has a pretty big office in Israel, or maybe it's not a big office, like a sizable office. But it's interesting because you know the, the he's they've set up a, a number of different offices, and like you know you have like kind of that you keep. It's sort of like I don't know what the analogy draws, but it's like. You know, there's advantage, there's cultural advantages, and there's like different these like Israel has. It's like I knew when I started watching your talks, I was like, okay, he's 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 got the Israeli performance bug, like whatever makes these Israeli people really good at like web performance, like there's something there, and like these like tool we like sort of tools businesses, but then you you also have like the kind of the similarity to Wix where you have this like really high level product that is like has a really ambitious vision. I don't know. It's interesting. It's just interesting seeing the like the domestic trends really start to develop in powerful ways. Yeah, I think one thing that I saw in common, kind of looking into myself and other founders in Israel is we really want to win whatever it takes. Like we want to win, we're ambitious, and we want to build big companies. And I don't think, I'm not sure, you know, what, if it's because we're from Israel or because we're very ambitious as, as people, but I just want to win, you know, I, I want to win. I want to build a huge company. And whatever is required to do so, like we'll do it. We work hard, we'll do whatever it takes. So there's this uh, like phenomenon that people always used to talk about, like with where in these developing startup startup nations like Israel or New York or, well, I mean, New York's a bad example, but Israel, these places that are not Silicon Valley, basically, where you have like Israel, uh, New York, Seattle. I'm from Austin originally, Austin, Texas. The narrative was always that you need to have one really, really big company develop, and then like that company needs to have some kind of exit, and then other people will start startups. Like you start to just that ecosystem starts to 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 mature. I've been really waiting for this to happen in Austin. It still has not quite happened to the extent that I understand. Like there just hasn't been that. I'm sure you've been to San Francisco, and like. There's just startups everywhere, and like it's just something in the water. I have not seen that anywhere else. Are you starting to see it in Israel, or like to what extent are you seeing it? Like, do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, definitely. We started to see it in Israel, and I think investors and public markets perspective on Israel have changed in the past years. Seeing a bunch of companies going public, and seeing a bunch of companies being acquired for for very large amounts. And it definitely shifted. Like I feel now in Tel Aviv, it's one of the best places to start a new company. There's a lot of investors, either local investors or investors from Silicon Valley or New York coming here looking for new businesses. 
insight, one of our investors, I think, if I'm not mistaken, invested in seven or eight different Israeli companies, and some of those are already unicorns. So there's so much potential here in Tel Aviv. So I, I definitely feel what you're saying, that you know, something has changed, something has shifted from a few years ago, and there's a lot of focus now on, on Israel in general. Just a few last things on kind of like the fundraising thing. So Insight, they're mostly growth or only growth? Insight is it focused on growth, but they actually were part of our B round, uh, which was fairly small. So I think they're doing kind of uh, growth and small check sizes as well. Okay. Wait, B is small? Well, back back in the days, it was small. We raised uh, $25 million. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So when you have as much growth as you have had like i saw the chart like that you were uh you gave you were you gave some talk and i you were just like showing the chart i was like that is some ridiculous growth i think you say you're the fastest growing company in israel so it, but it is just like it's like vertical it's like not even a hockey stick it's just like a wall when you have that much growth you have a ton of leverage in raising capital you can really like not only pick your terms but you can get a lot of selectivity in the terms most people, when they're raising money, like, you know, your your back is kind of against the wall. You just kind of, like, want to take whatever deal or, like, you know, you're getting these exploding term sheets and it's, like, high-pressure situation. You were kind of in, I think, probably the reverse situation. And But that doesn't mean it's, like, easier. You have a ton of options. Do you have any lessons from that unique fundraising position like that you know where you have tons of leverage but like you've got tons of offers give me some lessons from from that experience that that i i might not hear from anywhere else yeah so first of all fundraising is hard and it was hard for us as well it's it's never easy takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to do but yeah we were lucky to have a few options almost on on any funding round that we had one thing that uh, was really important for us was not to optimize for valuation, but to pick the right partner. For me, it, it, it's one of the most important things because at the end of the day, you know, picking the wrong partner can be devastating for the company. And picking the right partner can be so beneficial, you know, looking at the company valuation in the long run. So we just announced that we raised 150 million round just recently. And we picked Sapphire Ventures for leading the round and it wasn't the highest offer that we got, but we really connected with them on every level. And, and one of the things that we were most excited about was the fact that they really got the product, our vision, what we care about. And for us, that's the most important thing, because I think this maximizes the company potential in the long run, just having the right people on the board. And right now, our, our board is amazing. Uh, we have great board meetings. We have great dynamics within the board. And I've seen so many companies so successful that had you know the wrong board dynamics in their board. And it just, it's, it's devastating for a company. So for us, this is what we optimize for. What do you expect out of that kind of, like when you take a really late stage, a large, really late stage investment like that, what do you expect out of the investor? What are they doing on the board? Are they like helping you architect strategy? Are they helping you like think about how to IPO or not IPO or like that level of decisions? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because, you know, some founders think that the board should be very involved in, in running the company. And I don't think that's the right thing to do because at the end of the day, you meet them, you know, once every few weeks or once a quarter. 
And it's hard for them to make decisions from that point of view because they're not in the day-to-day details. So, you know, just looking at, at, at the last round, so, you know, at, at this stage, people kind of look at us and, and think how the company would look when we'll go public and look at our P&L and think about how it will be in a few years from now. And one of the things that we love most uh, when we discuss with, with Sephar, for example, is the fact that we talk a lot about, you know, the business, what kind of strategic things we need to do in order to grow even faster than what we're growing today. And it's, it just gives us a different perspective. So I think this is like the, the most value that you can get. Somebody that can give you a different perspective that will allow you to think on things differently that like with your existing tools, uh, you can reach. So this is kind of the value that I see from all of our investors, just, you know, giving us different perspectives and giving us different ways to think about our journey. Aaron, really fun talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Jeff. It was really fun. (laughs) 